All right, we are continuing this morning in our, our brief look at the practical applications of the message of Ecclesiastes in the realm of Christian discipleship. Uh, we're going to start this morning in Mark 11, though we're going to touch on several different passages throughout uh, before we're finished. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn there now, Mark chapter 11. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you can find that on page 1078, 1078. Now, last week, uh, while you're turning there, last week we looked at the central goal, the core of what discipleship is, Christ-likeness. We are called to pursue looking more and more like Christ in every area of life every day, and that predominantly happens through our surrendering of ourselves wholly to God's will. Remembering and even defining our lives, not by all the things that the world tells us that we need or should want, but rather by the Lord and what He sends into our lives, and then doing it again and again and again, because we keep turning back, and so we have to turn back to the Lord over and over again. We forget. We rebel. And that means remembering that becoming more like Christ is necessarily going to put us at odds with the world. Now, this week, we're going to try and put some more flesh on those bones, uh, trying to look at a couple of specific areas in which we need to submit to Christ's will, particular areas where, if you will, the rubber meets the road. But as always, we need the Holy Spirit when we open His Word. So if you're able now, please stand with me while I pray for the Spirit to be among us and then remain standing as I read from Mark chapter 11. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come to your word because we need your truth, and your word is the only place it is found. We pray that you would be among us, that you would teach us your truth, teach us who you are and who we are through this, your word, that you would glorify yourself in all things, that you, by your spirit, would restrain our sin, open our eyes and our hearts, that we would understand and believe and apply faithfully this, your word. May your name be praised, Father, Son, and Spirit, as we study your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading uh, from Mark chapter 11. This is God's word. As they, the disciples, passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. You'll remember this is the fig tree that Jesus had, had cursed a couple of days before, before going into the, uh, the temple to cleanse it. So they, they passed by and they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. Ed Hill was a pastor in Los Angeles some years ago, uh, once told the story of how mama's love and prayers changed his life. Now, he grew up during the height of the Depression, and his, his biological mother, who had five children of her own, didn't have the food to go around, which was not uncommon in those years. Uh, and so she sent her four-year-old son, Ed, to go live with a friend 
in a small country town called Sweet Home. Now, this friend that Ed went to go live with, he ended up just calling this woman Mama. Uh, And as he was growing up there in Sweet Home, Mama displayed a remarkable faith, which led her to have big plans for this young man. Against nearly insurmountable odds, obstacles, Mama helped Ed graduate from high school. He was the only student to graduate that year from the little country school, and even insisted that he go off to college. She took Ed to the bus station, handed him a ticket and five dollars, and said, now go off to Prairie View College, and Mama's going to be praying for you. Hill claims that he didn't know much about prayer, but he knew that Mama did, And when he arrived at the college with $1.90 left in his pocket, they told him that he needed $80 in cash in order to register. You can tell this is an old story, right? $80 for a semester of college. (laughs) But here's how Hill described what happened next. He says, I got in line, and the devil told me to get out of line. But I heard my mama saying in my ear, I'll be praying for you. I stood in line on the strength of mama's prayer. Soon there was another student in front of me, and only just the one, (coughs) excuse me, and I began to get nervous, but I stayed in line. Just about the time that that other student in front of me got all of her stuff and turned away, Dr. Drew touched me on the shoulder, and he said, are you Ed Hill? And I said, yes. Are you Ed Hill from Sweet Home? Yes, sir. Have you paid yet? No, not quite. We've been looking for you all morning, he said. And I said, "Well, well, what do you want with me? He said, we have a four-year scholarship that will pay for your room and board, your tuition, and give you $30 a month to spend. And I heard Mama say, I will be praying for you. As you were coming into the sanctuary this morning, did you examine your chair before you sat down? I mean... I know most of you, chances are you didn't even look at any of the chairs. You went to your normal seat and you sat in the regular one without thinking about it at all, right? Let's just be honest here. We automatically, when you get to that chair, you automatically committed yourself by faith to the chair, assuming that it would hold you up. And lo and behold, it has. The last time you went to the doctor, maybe he wrote you a prescription for something, which you couldn't read. In fact, you wondered if anybody could read the thing. Because it's a doctor's handwriting. Then you take it to the pharmacist, and then you give it to the pharmacist, and he pulls it up, pulls the ticky tip on the computer, and, you, and then he tells you to come back in a little while when he will have magically transformed that illegible slip of paper into a bottle of something. And so you come back, and he gives you the little bottle, and he says, take one of these three times a day. And you do. But you wonder, did he get it right? Did he guess wrong, maybe, about the doctor's handwriting? But by faith, you do exactly what he tells you to do. Faith is woven into every part of our lives, everything we do in this life. Of course, the next question is, faith in what? What are you trusting in any given moment? What are you trusting for the whole of your life? In our passage this morning, Jesus is teaching us how to apply what we talked about last week in some practical, tangible ways. Submission to God's will is a great principle, and it is utterly essential in this life. But it's a little hard to get our heads around, right? 
It's a little nebulous, a little ethereal, as it were. What does it look like in the real world, in our actual workaday lives? What does it look like to submit to God's will? And even if you know what it is, how do you do it? What means has God given us to accomplish the goal He intends of submission to His will and being remade in the image of Christ? What means do we have at our disposal? As we work through several of these over this week and next, uh, from least tangible but most familiar that we'll look at today, at least in conceptual form, to next week the more tangible ones, the most tangible ones, but which we have a hard time applying in our lives or least often applied. Put another way, we're going to look this week primarily on what submission to Christ's will looks like in our relationship to Him. And then next week we're going to look at what submission to Christ looks like in our relationship with each other. On one level, I'm not going to have anything particularly groundbreaking to say. You will have heard all of this before. I am not original. Sorry. If you were hoping for originality, you came to the wrong shop. But, though these are familiar concepts, they are important for all that. And we are none of us very good at embodying them. We need to hear them again. We need to submit ourselves to them again and again. And so for this morning, we're going to look at three main aspects of submission to Christ's will in our relationship to Him. First, faith in God. Second, prayer. And third, watching over or guarding your heart. Faith in God, prayer, and watching over your heart. As I said, first, faith in God. And again, you already know about this. You're familiar with it at least somewhat. You probably wouldn't be here if you weren't, right? Everyone who calls on Christ as Savior must have at least some faith in Him and His work, some willingness to apply the merit, the saving efficacy of Christ's work to you. You have to trust that He is willing to do that. We must believe at least a little bit And so we are here indoors on what could well turn out to be one of the most beautiful spring days of the year. One of the only that it wasn't snowing. We have trusted Christ for salvation. We're good, right? We can check that box, move on, we're ready to go, right? Now we can move on to the next thing. Well, not quite. I've said before, maturity in Christ does not consist of learning a whole bunch of esoteric theological points Being able to explain, for example, just as as one option, being able to explain the difference between infralapsarianism and supralapsarianism. Those are important terms. You should know them. Not really. Rather, maturity in Christ is found in examining more closely, trusting more deeply the simple gospel of Christ and the Christ of the gospel. Maturity is found in going deep in the basics. Learning again, applying those basic truths of the gospel again deeply in the areas where we struggle in our lives. Maybe the most fundamental point of the gospel, the most fundamental part of it, is our faith in God. So what does it mean to have faith? Obviously, it means that I never have any questions. I never wonder if maybe I've been a fool. I never doubt this whole Christianity thing ever at all, right? You're with me in that. We're all good, right? Maybe not. 
Faith is not belief without proof, neither is it belief without doubt. Rather, it is intentionally placing trust in a person who we have found to be trustworthy and living on the basis of that trust. One author put it this way. He said, faith involves conforming trustingly and prayerfully to God's purpose and putting our weight on His will as we turn away from rebellion and self-centeredness. It means counting on God's power to work His will into our lives. It is growing in persistent confidence in Jesus' presence and help. Did you catch that last part? It is growing in persistent confidence in Jesus' presence and help. In this life, you will never be completely free of doubt. In this life, we will never be completely free of doubt because we walk by faith and not by sight. There will always be that niggling fear in the back of your mind, what if I believed a lie? What if I'm fooling myself and fooling everyone else? What if it's real, but I don't really believe it? What if? That niggling fear, that doubt is always going to be present in this life. But there are different types of doubt. There are some doubts that are good, and there are some doubts that are deadly. If you find yourself maintaining a posture of distant observation of the works of the Lord, of reserving judgment and insisting primarily on a denial of trust until His faithfulness has been satisfactorily demonstrated to you, that doubt will utterly destroy you. In that moment, you are not trusting Christ. You are trusting your ability to discern truth, to discern value, your ability to decide whether Christ is worth the investment of time and energy and whatever else or not. You are trusting your ability to be judge over God. You're trusting your cost-benefit analysis, not Christ. That kind of doubt will tear down anything and everything good in your life. It will undermine all of it and it will utterly destroy you in the end. Flee the doubt that positions you as judge over all. Deciding what is good and what is not. On the other hand, there is a doubt that builds up, that encourages, that strengthens faith. As contradictory as that sounds, there is a doubt that strengthens faith. In this type of constructive doubt, we humbly wrestle with the challenge of being able to trust Jesus wholeheartedly. This is the doubt that cries with the terrified father of Mark 9, I believe, help my unbelief. It is consciously trusting ourselves to Jesus in the midst of unbelief. In the midst of fears and struggles. In the midst of feeling isolated and alone. In the midst of feeling like prayer doesn't work and Jesus is too far away to hear. In the midst of all the trials and vicissitudes in this life, in the hard places where everything seems dark, in the valley of the shadow of death where everything is dark. It is a conscious decision of the will, not the emotions, a conscious decision of the will that you will place your trust in Christ regardless. At the same time, 
Just as there is a bad doubt and a good doubt, there is also a bad faith and a good faith. When I was younger, back in the halcyon days before social media was a thing, back in my day, we called this faith bumper sticker faith. Cheesy one-line quips that will fit on a bumper sticker but which have no depth, have no weight, and which call for nothing from you but warm feelings. I suppose that's now characterized by cheesy one-line quips that fit on a short Facebook or Instagram post. Same idea. The basic idea remains the same. Possibly true on the surface, might be true words on the surface, but utterly devoid of depth, of weight, of comfort, of anything of value. Utterly lacking solidity. We must clearly see the difference between true faith in Christ and simple credulity. The essence of true faith is to put serious, childlike, or wholehearted weight, like you did with the chair, serious, wholehearted weight on God's existence and His presence in your life and His will for your life. Faith is not the opposite of proof. It is the opposite of self-sufficiency. Faith is not the opposite of proof because God provides evidence of His reality, of what He has done. It is not the opposite of proof. It is the opposite of self-sufficiency. Ultimately, true faith counters the danger of the fear of man, the fear of the world, of the fear of what may come. Counters all of that with the fear of the Lord. It recognizes the Lord's place in life. The the Lord is the one who holds all of that mess in His hand, completely in control of it, and who cannot be shaken. All right, well and good, Alex. That's great. What does that actually look like? How do I do that in my life? The first check of how you're doing in the area of genuine trust in the Lord is to ask what your prayer life looks like. The more you trust in Christ and submit to His will, the more prayer will be a defining feature of your life, both in times of crisis, Lord, help me, I'm in trouble, but also in times of calm, as you delight in Him and want to spend time with Him. The more you trust Christ and submit to His will, the more your prayer will change from the laundry list of things that you want from the great gumball machine in the sky, as one of a former pastor of mine used to say, to a progressive learning to agree with, progressing, growing in a a desire and an ability to learn to agree with and conform to and surrender to God's purposes. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. It's not wrong to pray for the things that we want in this life. The Lord invites us to do that. The closer we come to Christ, the more we are submitted to His will, the more what we want will begin to be transformed more and more into what He wants. Our desires will become His desires. We will still be invited to come and to bear our hearts and lift our desires to Him, but our desires will be shaped more and more by what is pleasing to the Lord. It means the tenor of your prayers will be different, will be more and more built around the assumption that the Lord cares for you personally, knows you personally, cares for you personally, knows what you need even before you ask it, but calls for you to ask for it anyway. 
and already has a plan in motion to provide what is needed even before you ask. I'm going to get this name wrong. Dr. Helen Rosaviar, who's a missionary to Central Africa, uh, told the story once of a mother at, at her mission station who had died giving birth to a premature baby. They tried to uh, improvise an incubator there out in, in the, the you know, far distant uh, mission station, but all the, the only hot water bottle they had was beyond repair. So they prayed for the baby and her big sister, who was now an orphan. And one of the girls at the station there responded in prayer, Dear God, please send a hot water bottle today. Send a hot water bottle today. Tomorrow will be too late. And dear Lord, send a doll for her sister so she won't be lonely. That afternoon, a parcel arrived from England, and the children watched as the, the folks in charge opened it. And to their surprise, under some clothing, which was what they expected, there was a hot water bottle. Immediately, the girl who had prayed, the girl who had prayed dug deeper into the parcel. She was sure that God would provide the doll that she had prayed for as well. And she was right. The Lord knew the child, knew the, the child's faith. Five months before they had prayed, five months before they knew they needed to pray, the Lord had led a women's church group back in England to include both of those specific items. Prayer that grows from a trust in the character of God that knows who He is and how He works and has seen Him working, that knows that He will fulfill His good purposes always, that prayer just looks different. Jesus, though he knew exactly what was to come, knew exactly why it was to come the night before his crucifixion, you remember what he prayed? Father, let this cup pass. He knew what was coming and he knew why it was coming and he still, Lord, let this cup pass, but not my will, but yours be done. In the passage that I read earlier in Mark 11, as I said, the context is uh, Jesus uh, cursing the fig tree and then cleansing the temple. And all of it together points to one central aim. Jesus calls God's people to true and universal worship and prayer. Faith that moves mountains, which is not literally speaking about moving mountains, but is clearly intended to be figurative, doing big things in faith. Faith that moves mountain is faith that is willingly conforming itself to God's stated mission in contrast to our own wishes. In contrast to our own wishes. As such, the faith that rests on the God of truth, who is the God who is rightly jealous for his own prerogatives, for his own worship as the only one worthy of worship, that faith grows into a prayer that asks confidently for the divine removal of everything that hinders true worship, even if it's something that I wanted even if it's something that I loved or desired above all else. If it hinders true worship, Lord, I want it gone, because that's what matters most. And as you should expect, that prayer begins with ourselves, as we see in verse 25. As one author put it, it involves the call to let the unmerited grace of God affect our identity in redemptive character change. We expect that God will change us 
to make us more and more like him as he applies the blood of Christ, the grace that he has given us in the gospel, as he applies that to us, he will change us and make us more like him. Redemptive character change. This means that there will be a heartfelt readiness to pass God's forgiveness on to others. We'll talk about forgiveness in particular next week. We'll get there. But it's important to see just how connected all of these things are. All of this is submission to Christ is found in true faith, which expresses itself through prayer, which itself changes our hearts to be more and more like His, leading us to changed interactions with others, specifically to giving forgiveness out like water in the desert. And that sounds delightful. Please, Lord, make it so. But that vision of what we're growing into and what we're becoming necessarily includes what we're growing out of. Our temptation to stay where we are because it's more comfortable. Which means that another aspect of our submission to Christ is watching carefully over our hearts, keeping a vigilant eye on the condition of your heart, constantly returning to surrender, to trust, and to intentionally, willingly surrender and trust into the genuine prayer that flows from them. In Mark 7, Jesus teaches about the source of our problems. Look at, if you, if you have your Bible, turn over to Mark 7, uh, verse 14 to 23. Let me read that. Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Then he said... What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. There is in each of us a hard heart or at least a repository of hardness within our heart, a repository, pockets of rebellion and resistance to Christ's will within our hearts. This is true of every one of us. As we continue to follow Christ, we must find out where, our, where there are elements of a hard, autonomous heart attitude which persists in self-reliance and self-righteousness. I had a pastor once who told us regularly that the biggest problem we have as humans is our selfish, self-centered focus on self. Selfish, self-centered focus on self. It resides, it sits in our hearts and it poisons everything. We must be constantly aware of what is coming out of our hearts so that we can choose consciously and intentionally to submit those remaining infestations of selfishness to the Lord. Paul Tripp tells the story of when he was, I think he was a young teen, maybe 12, 13 years old, uh, being taken to a family gathering, family party. And at the gathering, there was some alcohol uh, and eventually, one of the older men in the family, one of the uncles or something, uh, had, had a bit too much 
and began to make crude remarks about some of the women in the family. And immediately, uh, Tripp says, his mother gathered him and his siblings up and took them home. But he said in the car, she said something that stuck with him ever since. She said that those crude words, those wicked things that came out of that man's mouth were not caused by the alcohol. They were revealed by the alcohol. They had been in his heart the whole time. She said, and this was the the quote, she said, what comes out of the mouth of a drunk is what is inside his heart when he is sober. Y'all, the same is true for each of us. When we have authority or space or whatever, when we think we can get away with it, we say and we do things that express who we truly are. That give voice to what is in our hearts. What we hide in our hearts when we don't have that space, when we don't think we can get away with it. Power does not corrupt. Power reveals the corruption that is already present. We know that we have sin remaining in our lives, even as Christians. We we know that we have sin remaining in us, and as we submit to Christ's will more and more, we will set a tight watch on our hearts, a guard on our hearts and on our mouths so that we will discover what form that remaining self-reliance, that remaining sinfulness will take in us so that we can repent of it immediately. We will be tempted constantly. We will be told by everything in the world that this sin is just fine. It's no big deal. Everyone does it. It's fine. But that's a lie. Sin is always ugly. No matter how common it is, no matter how accepted it is, no matter how much it's brushed under the carpet, it is always ugly. It is always deadly. And before you think I'm talking about all of them wicked people out there and all the terrible things that they do, take a look at the, this month's Table Talk magazine that we just put out. It's all about the sins that we find acceptable, understandable, that we are not concerned by. All that stuff that you hear about in the news, sure, yeah, that's bad. Fine, we get it. It's bad. Those people out there do bad things. Cool. What is in your heart, Christian, is worse. Because it's in your heart. But as you submit to Christ, as you trust His will above your own, the Holy Spirit will give you eyes to see that mess, that corruption that remains that you are blind to right now. Or maybe you're not blind to it and just don't think it's a big deal. He will give you eyes to see all of that and a desire to repent of your self-sufficient plan for your own life. And then he will lavish on you grace and mercy beyond anything you could ask for or even imagine. Because as you see your sin more clearly, you will recognize the grace of Christ more clearly as well. Because his blood covers all of your sin, not just the part that you already knew about. Covers all of it. And as you see your sin more clearly, you will see the depth and the wealth and the breadth of His grace and mercy to you. 
You must set a guard on your heart so that you can recognize the subtle filth that still remains and then pursue through the grace of the Holy Spirit the submitting of your desires for those things listed there in chapter 7, verses 21 and 22, all of that whole long list. Submit your desires for those things to Him and then see Him begin to reverse them in you to clean those things out and plant in you the gifts and the graces that he longs for, that he knows are the best possible thing you could have. He wants you cleansed of your wickedness. You know how I know? Because he said so. This is his will for you, your sanctification. This is God's will, your sanctification. He wants you to be sanctified. That is what He is doing in your life. That is what He will do. He will do what He said. He wants you cleansed of the hardness of your heart, the self-sufficiency, the self-righteousness that hides in the things that we all just kind of accept as ordinary parts of this life, but which are wicked. Watch over your heart. And when you see, when, not if, when you see that remaining sin, pray to Him that He would cleanse you. And at the end of the day, trust that He will do so through the blood of Christ given for you. Because He who began a good work in you, He will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. He is faithful. Our trust is in one who is trustworthy. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We do pray that you would, by your Spirit, give us grace to set a guard on our hearts, to pray to you and be transformed by our prayer and our trust in you. Lord, let us trust you. We believe. Help our unbelief. Work in our hearts and in our lives that we might be made more and more in the image of your Son who you love. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.